Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey guys, welcome back to We Met at Acme. This is going to be a very important episode that everyone should listen to. Grab your boyfriend, your brother. Well, that might be a little awkward, but everyone needs to hear what Dr. Human has to say. It's so important to talk about sexual health and I just feel like we don't do it enough. There are so many stigmas attached to HPV and herpes. And I actually reveal in this episode that I was positive for HPV at one point. And I thought it was a way bigger deal than it was. And that's even after having gotten that HPV you know, vaccine a long time ago. So there's so much misinformation out there when it comes to our sexual health. I think this is a great episode to clear all of that up and we need that clarity. So I'm excited to get into it. I'm just going to do a quick solo, not too long because I feel that this information is necessary and we should listen to it as soon as possible. Um, Somebody said... I just got out of a long distance relationship and I'm newly dating someone. It's very clearly mutual, but at what point is it normal to bring up that you just got out of a relationship? I feel like you should have brought that up already, but if you haven't, I think like in the first few dates, I personally like to be like, so when was your last relationship? I feel like it's very telling. And so like, for you, if they're not asking that, this was from a woman who submitted this. I feel like guys don't ask about our past relationships often, which is weird. Like we have to be the ones to initiate that conversation. Maybe it's a weird toxic masculinity thing. They don't like imagining us with like other people, but it's definitely something that you should bring up as soon as you can. I struggled with this when I you know, first was going out on dates with my now partner, I had really just gotten out of a relationship like a couple weeks before. And I was scared that talking about it would scare him away or think that I wasn't over it. And I think everything's different. I don't know this particular person's situation, but I was really like, you know, and I talked about this on the podcast a lot, but I had mourned my relationship already. And so I definitely was over it, but I think it's different for everyone. So you just should explain the situation and just be open. And again, like just open communication about it. Someone said, can we talk about the pressure of everyone, friends slash family, asking the girl about getting engaged next steps, but never the guy. I see and I have experienced this. Like, please annoy him with the questions, not me. Oh, 
Yes, it is really annoying. I don't know why that is. And especially because like the man usually asks the woman in like a cis hetero situation. So like, what do you want me to say? I don't know what to tell you, but it is a thing. I don't know. Maybe people just envision that women like are dreaming about their wedding. And so like, they feel like they like that question. I don't know, but it definitely is a question that everyone should stop asking. Some people have no plans to ever marry their partner. They just want to be partners. And so I feel like it should definitely stop. The pressure should be, you know, if you're listening to this, don't ask someone when they're getting engaged. It's just weird. Like it's, you know, I've been asked it tons of times when I do this like open poll question and like, I don't fucking know. Like, I, I, what do you, what do you want me to say? Oh, actually, yeah. Like on June 12th, um, at like 3 PM is when it's going down. Like, no, somebody said, I find that because of being in isolation for so long, I've become more shy in early dating scenarios when I'm usually very silly and goofy and outgoing. I wonder how others are thinking about this. Um, definitely relate to this. I went to a small gathering. It was about eight people for my friend's birthday or sorry, my boyfriend's friend's birthday. Uh, but I guess he's my friend now too. And it was really lovely, but I did find that I was being shy and not myself. And maybe that's just because these are like not my like friends that know me as well as like my own personal friends, if that makes any sense. But I, I did find that to be the case. And I can imagine if I were dating right now, I would feel a little bit more shy because like we're not interacting with people. And so it's really standard to just feel like you're in your head about these interactions when there's such few and far between. So I would just be honest about it and be like, I don't, I don't know. I guess there's no real way to be like, I'm feeling shy. Like I'm not usually shy, but I would just push yourself to be more open. Maybe like ask each other specific questions that opened you and the person you're dating up a little bit more. You know, I love the 36 questions that lead to love, which is a New York Times article. There's, you know, questions that you can, like game questions that you can order. There's this game, Actually Curious, that I really like. And We're Not Really Strangers has good questions. But I think also just like, you know, try to like gauge that like silliness back and talk about things that aren't so serious since, you know, we're in a pandemic and it's always serious all the time. I feel like on dates is your time to like relax a little bit, even though it's obviously easier said than done. Someone wanted me to talk about imposter syndrome. I feel like this has been popping up a lot recently, almost as if people have like never heard of this before. But for anyone that hasn't, imposter syndrome is really just when you feel like an imposter in what you're doing. And you feel like I'm not qualified to do this or like, why would I be qualified to do this? Why, Like if you're, you know, if you're a female CEO thinking to yourself, like, what am I doing? Like, uh, should, should I be doing this right now? And blah, blah, blah. And the reality is everyone experiences imposter syndrome. It's not even just a female thing, like males, females, every type of person experiences imposter syndrome. And it's just like some little voice in our head saying we're not good enough or we're not this or we're not that. But the reality is that if, and even in, even in relationships, right? Like I'm not like good enough for my partner, this or that, like it can create relationship anxiety. But the reality is that like, if you're dating somebody, 
then you're good enough for them because there's obviously something about you that they really love. If you're in a role, in a job, then you're good enough for it because obviously they hired you for a reason. So for these imposter syndrome situations, you just have to focus on the facts. And that's what my therapist would tell me. Just what are the facts? Not the emotions that you're having, but the facts. Another thing I just wanted to say is that March is Eating Disorder Awareness Month. And we're definitely going to do something around this because it's so important to talk about. And I actually, when I asked a poll if anyone struggled with ED, I meant erectile dysfunction, but so many people thought that I meant eating disorders and responded that they did struggle with it. So I think it's something that a lot of people can relate to. I personally have been there. You know, I, for the most part, have a really healthy relationship with food because I don't restrict myself at all. But there have been times in my life where I really didn't like myself. And any woman, you know, saying they've never had a time where they looked at their body or what they were eating, um, it's hard to believe because it's tough out there with like societal standards of what beauty is. And I just want to say if you're struggling with an eating disorder or have in the past, like you're not alone. And, you know, we're definitely going to address this at some point. So, stay strong. And, you know, it's so important to bring awareness to this. I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Human, And I hope that you guys learn a thing or two from this episode. I certainly did. My boyfriend and I can never agree on when to eat dinner. I love to eat earlier and he likes to eat later. And it's just like, it doesn't work. So what I do is I, or have been doing the past couple nights is I've been ordering from Caviar and he's been ordering from some other delivery service. And first of all, my food comes so quickly and his takes forever, but also I get to eat like sooner than he does. And I personally think that the restaurants on Caviar are way better. I ordered from Ruby's Cafe last night. It's like this chic Australian cafe with the best fries ever and a really good burger. They also have healthy stuff if you're, you know, not indulging, which I feel like I always am when I order caviar because I can't not because they have the best food ever. Whether you're in the mood for pizza, sushi, dim sum, falafel, Caviar has all of the best local restaurants. Like they work with only the best of the best. So it's pretty curated and pretty easy to decide what to get. Um, There's also amazing pictures of all of the food. So it's such good inspo. Honestly, even when I'm not hungry, sometimes I just scroll on caviar. So I want you to experience it for yourself. Check out Ruby's Cafe. Check out Pastis, Tolo Ace. You can order Roberta's, Fort Charles Prime Rib. Granted, these are just places in New York City, but caviar is all over. So definitely download it. And you can get 20% off your first order when you enter the promo code ACME2021 at checkout. 20% off your first order with promo code ACME2021. Download the Caviar app and use offer code ACME2021 for 20% off your first order and tag me in your food stuff at Don't Expect Salads. Not sure if you watched the Golden Globes. By the way, I cannot believe that it is March already and a week into March. Like where did the time go? But I was watching the Golden Globes and something that I noticed and thought was amazing was that Amy Poehler was wearing Majuri jewelry. You know that Majuri is my favorite jewelry. I wear it 
all the time. I never take it off. I shower with it. And my favorite part about Majuri is that it's everyday fine jewelry. So it's not like oh, you're dressing up, you put this on, you can wear this every day if it's up to you or you can not wear it and then wear it to dress up. It's totally your call. And Majuri for me, it's like jewelry for me that I buy for myself. Obviously it's nice when a man buys you jewelry, but to be able to buy it for yourself because it's fairly priced and ethically sourced and you feel good about it is the best feeling. I also love that they have Zodiac rings and necklaces because you know how I feel about astrology. So definitely check it out. All you have to do is head to Majuri.com slash Acme and you're going to get 10% off your first order. M-E-J-U-R-I slash Acme for 10% off your first order now. Check it out. I'm Kareen Eldor. Ever feel like you're playing small? Well, turn up the volume on my podcast, Share a Voice. Every Thursday, I sit down with the wave makers and game changers on everyone's radar. I'll be sharing inspo and takeaways based on my conversations with disruptors, visionaries, and compelling creatives about how they express themselves in their work. Prepare for tons of mic drop moments and subscribe so that you catch every sound bite. I'm fascinated by the power of feeling heard and taking up space. And I'm amped up about sharing these conversations with you. Hey guys, welcome back to We Met at Acme. I'm so excited to be here with Dr. Justin Human. See, I almost messed up the Justin part. Hey, how's it going? Hey, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for being here. I feel like we really need a doctor's opinion today. So much has been coming up on the podcast about you know, men's sexual health and just sexual health in general. So I feel like it's really good to talk to a professional here. But before we get started, just for a little background, Dr. Human, how old are you and where are you from? So I'm 34 years old. I practice here in Beverly Hills, California. I'm originally from uh, Orange County. So I've gone back and forth. I did some of my school here in Los Angeles, um, some of my schooling in New York and upstate New York and Rochester. And now I'm back here in, uh, in L.A. Nice. And what brought you into kind of the, you know, men's health, like section of being a doctor? Um, Is it, was it always something that you were interested in or did you kind of just like fall into it? So, you know, I'm a, I'm a urologist, I'm a trained as urologist at urology residency. And most urologists do a little bit of men's health, but during my training, I realized where I saw there's a huge gap in terms of, you know, as, as specialized as medicine is, we have tons of um, physicians who do, you know, who address a few p- issues, a few disease processes, but men's health is this huge gap where guys between the age of 20 and 50, they don't have somebody who addresses their men's health needs. They have doctors, primary care doctors, cardiologists, endocrinologists, but sexual function, it's a huge gap. And it's such an important thing, especially during those, those years, those 20 years to 50 years of, uh, of age. So a huge gap. And I thought you know, it was very satisfying when I talked to patients about these these issues. So I did a fellowship in it. So yeah, so now I you know specialize in reproductive and sexual men's health. Yeah, that's great. I feel like you're totally right. There is a huge gap and I just feel like men don't really take care of their health whether it's, you know, their sexual health, their mental health, um physical health as much as they should. So it's definitely important and just because this is a dating podcast. Uh, what is your current relationship status? Uh, I'm seeing somebody right now. Yeah. TBD in terms of where it's going to go, but yeah. 
Okay. At this very moment, can I ask how long has it been that you've been seeing this person? A few months. And, and how'd you meet? Through Instagram. Very cool. Did you slide into their DMs? Slide in, yeah. You did? I did. Saying what? Um, just using a clever line based on one of her pictures. And then um, it worked. It, ho- it hooked her on. And um, yeah, so far we've been riding it. That's amazing. And you said a few months. So are we talking like two months or three months? Talking three months. Okay. So you're getting into that place where you're trying to decide if it's going to be your girlfriend or just someone you're seeing. Yeah. Something like that. Okay. And when is your birthday? Uh, December 15th. So you're a Sagittarius. Sagittarius. Through and through. I love it. Um, So I guess let's get right into it. You focus on men's men's health, but you also obviously know about women's as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a physician, yeah, we do know. Okay, great. So the first topic um, that has come up time and time again, that I actually didn't even know this name for it, but is herpes. But I guess the name someone said was HSV. I don't know nearly enough about this as I should. And um, I'm not sure that our listeners do either. And I think the stigma around it is that it's really scary and dangerous. And if somebody has it, you shouldn't go out with them. It should be a deal breaker. And I think that shouldn't be the case. I have a, you know, a friend who, who has herpes and she's open about it. And there's like, you know, Facebook groups dedicated to normalizing it. And so what is a doctor's perspective on herpes and um, just like how, how bad it is or how not that bad it is? So what, what herpes is, is well, there's two types of herpes, right? There's oral herpes and genital herpes. That, those are where it primarily exists. And typically, you know, as you said, HSV, there's HSV1, which is the mouth, HSV2, which is the genitals. It could be guys and girls both get it. It's very common, right? Herpes is common. It's one of those things that once you get it, once it gets into your cells, there's no real way of getting rid of it. However, I mean, you could be, it could be in the dormant stage for decades, but during times of stress, when you're not healthy, when you're sick, when you're tired, when your immune system is essentially compromised, it comes out of that dormant stage and starts to present itself with vesicles. And that's when you see herpes. And that's typically when it's transmittable. So it's incredibly common. A lot of people do have this and a lot of people, they don't know that they have it. But those who do, it's, you know, you could have a normal relationship with one partner having herpes and another partner not having herpes. The thing is, you just got to be responsible. You got to be uh, in terms of knowing when you're presenting when you're not in that dormant stage, when you're in that active virulent stage, there's certain medications that you could take even before you get to it, because you'll feel the pain. You know, a lot of times you'll feel the pain here, you'll feel the pain in the generals. If you take those uh, these antivirals to suppress it, you could shorten the duration of the active phase and then ultimately reduce transmittability. Yeah, I actually never have said this on the podcast before, and I'm going to say another thing later that I've never said before, but I dated someone in college who had herpes and he told me pretty much right away. It was very respectful about it. He said that he actually got it. And I don't know how, if, how true this is or if you can really ever know how you got it, but he said that he got it through birth, through his mother who had it. I don't know if that's like a legitimate thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if... You know, going through the vaginal canal, if, she, if he did, you know, he, he did have a, um, a vaginal delivery. There's a chance, if, again, if she was in that virulent stage, if she was in that active stage. Right. Um, so, yeah, it, it does happen. Yeah. And then throughout 
our dating, which was only a year, um, he only had, I think, like one breakout um, the entire time. And he was well aware of it. And he said, like, I am having a potential breakout. Like, we're not going to kiss, you know, this and that. And I was like, great. You know, I felt very comfortable about it. So I think that, you know, because of my experience and and what you said, like, there's nothing to be afraid of. Um, but I guess, is it the same thing when it is genital? Yeah, same idea, same idea, but just a different part of the body. So, um, you know, in terms of the transmittability, when it's in that, again, in the virulent stage, uh, yeah, you have to be careful. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people, um, you know, they'll wear, during those times, they'll wear uh, condoms as a form of protection. Uh, mm-hmm. But ultimately what it is, it has to be a dialogue between the two people, right? That's what mm-hmm. it comes down to. If you're honest, if you have good communication between between the two of you, that's what's going to act. Um, lead to, you know, a healthy, trustful relationship. Yeah. And another thing that has come up a lot from women, and then I have, you know, tons of questions for men related things, but um, is something called vaginismus. Um, Say it again. Vaginismus. Vaginismus. So, a couple women, or they reach out and they said, "What do I do? I have, you know, vaginismus, and it hurts when I have sex. So, like, will any guy ever want to be with me?" Type thing. Um, can you explain what it is and what to do and how to like find pleasure other ways if if you aren't able to have sex with someone because of it? So, vaginismus. So, it's basically, it's where. It, what it ultimately leads to, it's difficult with painful, painful intercourse, right? Painful vaginal penetration. And there's a number of reasons behind it. Um, one of the common ones being is a very tight pelvic floor. So all of us, men and women, are, we have a, you know, in the between our hip bones, we have these thick, thick muscle fibers, very thick, and they're involved in defecation, urination, and orgasm, amongst other things. And they help keep all the organs up in our belly, right? All those. So as you can imagine, they're very thick and they're involuntary. We don't use them a lot of, Sometimes we're able to control them, but for the most part, for orgasm and whatnot, they're just involuntary and they fire on them. Sometimes those fibers, those muscle fibers, for whatever reason, um, sometimes it's inflammation, sometimes it's anxiety, stress, that pelvic floor becomes very tight. And when that pelvic floor is tight, any type of stimulation or further stimulation of it could potentially cause pain, worsening pain. The good thing is, well, I will say this, it's common, right? Vaginism is, again, it's common. Although it's a taboo subject, most people don't like to talk about it. It is common. It is something that a lot of people experience. And there's a lot of good treatments for it, especially for the pelvic floor dysfunction uh, situation where something as simple as, there's many treatments, something that you could start off with um, lifestyle modifications, sits baths that help like muscle relaxants. uh, Being in a bath will help. And pelvic floor physical therapy, there's a whole group of physical therapists who specialize in treatment of pelvic floor issues, they're great for this. They're great for any type of pelvic floor issue. So yeah, there's a lot of solutions for this, a lot. Is it the same thing as endometriosis? No, it's different. It's different. Endometriosis is um, where your uterine lining, those uh, those are in different parts of the pelvis. They're outside the uterus. And that causes pain with, because it's in somewhere where it's not supposed to be, your body responds with inflammation and pain during your periods, during the menstrual cycle. So yeah, uh, it's different. Okay. And then the last thing that, well, there's actually going to be a lot more, but the last, you know, purely female subject is cysts. And a common one that has come up a lot is called the Bartholin cyst. 
And a lot of women like have reached out and been like, can you talk about this cyst? Like I'm not a doctor. So no, I can't talk about this cyst. Um, I have no idea if I've ever experienced it. I've had like things that are questionable happen that I had to, you know, go in and ask if they were okay, but it's never been diagnosed as something like that. So um, what what is that exactly? So what it is, is it's, um, and this is slightly less common, but what it is, is there's, um, there's ducks, um, men and women both have it. So it's a guy, you know, men have it primarily in their urethras. So all these structures, they're analogous. What a woman has in her external vagina, a guy will have in his, in his urethra. So we all embryologically, we just branch out from a similar point. So um, these cysts are basically obstructions of these ducts outside the, you know, for, for Bartholin cyst, it's outside the vagina and it's just an obstruction of it. So fluid builds up in there and it could, could cause pain, but easy, I mean, it should be easily addressed if diagnosed properly. So um, if it is something that's bothersome, if it is something concerning, consultation with a urologist, a urogynecologist, an OB-GYN, they should be able to address it. Yeah. And then I have a question for like just me and then we're going to take the rest of the listeners' questions. But I had a kidney infection two years ago and it was like the worst pain I've ever been in. It happened because of an untreated UTI, which is very you know common. And it was, yeah, it was awful. And ever since then, I have to pee like very often. Granted, I drink a lot of water, okay? Like I drink the amount of water that like they tell you to drink in magazines and and whatnot. But I always have to have an empty bladder. Like when I don't, I'm very uncomfortable and like have agita and almost like PTSD. Is this a normal thing? Um... Is there some sort of explanation medically for why I have to pee all the time? And I mean, like at dinner, at least two times um, during the meal. And you're drinking more fluid now than you did before the, the kidney infection? I think I always drank a lot of water. I did like I, I even before the infection, I peed a lot. So I, I don't know. Is that is that normal? So you know, the infection, typically you know, a urinary tract infection stays within the bladder. And that's when people get those symptoms, you know, pain with urination. They go into the bathroom a lot. Every once in a while, it's less common, obviously. It goes up into the kidneys, right? Which is what happened in your situation. Now, you know, coming back to the idea of what has that changed your whole urinary function, un- unlikely in the sense that like something anatomically has changed. Rather, yeah. rather what it could have done, and this is coming back to that pelvic floor issue is, you know, we talked about inflammation of that pelvic floor, inflammation of any organs within the pelvis could, could in some ways disrupt the chemistry or the, 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 the harmony of that pelvic floor. And in, in your situation, my sense is what it does is just decrease the threshold for it to sense, to get the feeling that you have to urinate. So for you, you just now have a, you know, the sensation that you have to, to, to pee more often. Now, is it something that you could uh, you address? Yeah, definitely. As long as you're not having an active infection, right? There's a simple, there's a few simple tests. Just check your urine, make sure you don't have any infection, making sure you're emptying the bladder properly. But there's things that you could do to address that as well. But there's nothing anatomically wrong right now is what my sense is for you. Yeah. And then another question just from me and then we'll turn it over. But, you know, is it possible for like, let's say a man and a woman having sex for their genitals to not be compatible. And just hear me out here. Um, I don't mean like the man is like too big and the woman's like too small. I mean like, 
every time they have unprotected sex, the woman gets like a UTI or yeast infection from that interaction, whether that's because like the man isn't cleaning himself enough or showering enough, or maybe there's like, you know, maybe they're not circumcised. And so there's like more bacteria that like feeds back and forth. You know, is this something that is, is common? And I guess I think, part of why I'm asking is because I've experienced this in the past, not, not now, but in the past with, with a partner. And it's kind of a weird experience because you're like feeling gaslit by the fact that you are the woman and you're the only one getting like these things. You know what I mean? Right. Um, yeah. That's one of the advantages of being a guy. It doesn't, in this sense, it doesn't really go the other way around. So like you said, right. If you're uncircumcised, obviously the key thing about being, there's nothing wrong with being uncircumcised, right? You know, there's actually some studies that show guys who are uncircumcised, their sex is way more pleasurable. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the one thing about being uncircumcised, we always tell patients is, you know, you always have to keep that area clean. Peel it back once, twice a day, make sure that area is clean, it's dry. Because as you can imagine, any any area, especially in your genitals, it's warm, it's wet, it's a perfect environment for bacteria. And when you are having intercourse, you may be introducing that bacteria into the vagina and sometimes the urethra, right? So yeah, so that's that could that could happen. But, but the other thing is, sometimes, and this is obviously less, less common is people's, we all have bacteria all over our skin, right? Good, good and good bacteria. Usually, you know, if you have bad bacteria, you'll feel it, you'll have issues. But sometimes my good bacteria, you know, you may not like it. Somebody else may not like my good bacteria and they're they're, uh, sensitive to it. And that could create issues. Now, is this long-term? Very rarely does it create long-term problems where over the years and decades, they're never sexually compatible, but it could, you know, over time, you get desensitized to that person's bacteria, to that person's skin flora, to that person's chemistry, you know, their skin chemistry. And over time, that should, you should be de- desensitized and things should resolve. Mm-hmm. If let's say there's an issue with someone smelling a certain way, right? Like um, I think we've all heard of like, a man, you know, trying to go down on a woman and being like, oh, this is not, this is not a great smell and vice versa, you know, how is that fixed? And is it something as simple as just like showering more often? Yes and no. Yes and no. We all have for that, that same idea with the skin floor, we all have bacteria and sometimes that bacteria will emit a, when it's moist, it's humid and it's in that environment, it'll emit a, a particular scent. Does it mean there's an infection? No, unless unless uh, you're having symptoms of an infection. Things you could do to mitigate that. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily recommend anything to mitigate that because that's who you are. That's your natural flora. There's things that you could do to kill that bacteria, right? That you don't, you know, cleanse that area, but then you're you're setting yourself up for a real infection. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, sometimes sometimes it is what it is. You know, this is this is who I am. That's who you are, and you got to find a middle ground. Yikes. Um, I don't know if I'd be able to accept that personally, but kudos to anyone who can. Okay. So we got some questions going on here. Um, Somebody says, how do I get my boyfriend to see a doctor? He pees so often and he finishes very quickly during sex. So he pees often during sex, I'm assuming? No, I think he pees often generally and he finishes quickly during sex. Okay. Like, I, I don't know if the two are related, but this is what she said. Yeah. Um, so peeing, peeing very often, two things that could, two main things that could cause this. One of them, it could be an infection, a bladder infection. It gives you the sense that you always have to go to the bathroom. So, you know, a, a simple urine culture could, could identify if there is an active infection. The other thing is, you know, guys just need, or everybody just needs two things. Guys, actually, you only need two things to pee, right? To urinate. You need a bladder and then open prostate. 
young guys typically, they may have something called overactive bladder where the bladder gets the sensation that it just has to go to the bathroom, even though it's not filled. Usually when it fills up to 400, 500 milliliters, that's when it gets the sensation to pee. But every once in a while, the bladder, again, the nerve sensitivity, for whatever reason, it, it, it becomes a little active and it give, again, it gives the sensation that you have to pee. Um, it's, so is it abnormal? No, no. If it's, if it's bothersome, then we could say, hey, listen, there's something we have to do about it. But if it's, there's a lot of normal variants for urination, right? So if some guy's going to the bathroom 10 times, and he's not bothered by it, that's fine. There's nothing to do about it. Yeah. Uh, if he's bothered by it, then yeah, you know, we, there's, there's things we could do for it. Yeah, I definitely have an overactive bladder. But, um, and then the second part, which is, which is just about, you know, them finishing quickly. Yeah, so premature ejaculation, very common. But is it premature if it's like, I always thought premature ejaculation was like ejaculating before you're even like getting into it. You know what I mean? It's more than that. It's more than that. Like I like to tell patients like it, it's, it's premature only if it's creating a problem between you and your spouse. Right. So if, if you're comfortable, if you guys are comfortable with um, a short period of sex and it's not bothersome, then Hey, that's great. But at the same time, if, if it's short and it's causing problems, well, I will say what causes it. It's basically your nerves, those nerves that, are, that trigger orgasm, that trigger ejaculation. You're just highly sensitized. That that threshold for you is very low. And as soon as you hit that that beat, you hit, as soon as you you know string that 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 nerve, you're gonna fire. We have we have options for this. Um, the options are good. They're not great. So I will say the first line is we, we there's a gel, there's a lidocaine cream that guys put around their penis uh, right before sex, maybe five minutes before sex. It dries on the penis. And they're able to go, the hope is that desensitizes them just enough in order to have a good, satisfying sexual interaction. It, you know, it doesn't work great. So most patients try that. They don't do that well. So they move on. And this is what we're trying to figure out, right? There's a lot of new therapies out there. Historically, we've used antidepressants, actually. So normal doses of antidepressants, one of the side effects is something called anorgasmia. It limits your ability to orgasm, right? That's just a side effect because it acts neurologically. But at lower doses, we've been giving it at low, certain uh, antidepressants at low doses. And it's for, for some patients, it finds that nice uh, middle ground for them to have normal, satisfying um, intercourse in terms of length. But as you can imagine, it has side effects. So there's a lot of newer treatments out there. There's, a, there's companies in Israel. There's companies in, um, in Europe who are working on devices that train your penis. So what you do is you'll put your penis into a device. And what it does is it's controlled by your iPhone it stimulates your nerves. What it, it tries to, it basically tries to get you as close to orgasm without you orgasming and then it comes down. And then the next, it's a game. Like if you look at the, the screen, there's literally a game that you're playing. And the next time it goes even further. And the whole point is that you're just trying to train those nerves to push to the limit, but not get past the limit. And each mm. day, each week you make progress. There's good data supporting it. Yeah. So that's, you know, and then there's other things coming out, other oral therapies that are coming out. But um, like I said, right now we have good, not great options. Yeah. It's so interesting because I feel like so many women are afraid to tell their partner that they're not okay with the fact that they, you know, ejaculate so quickly. And I dated someone years ago who, you know, we had sex the first time and it happened really quickly, which can be common the first time you have sex with someone because it's just like an exciting experience. And so I gave it another shot. Same thing happened. I gave it a third shot and the same thing happened. And then I was like, I can't, like, I just can't. And I didn't feel close enough to him to be like, this is what is a deal breaker for me. 
And um, I feel like so many women will not say something or even like if it's their partner not say something because they don't prioritize themselves like being able to reach an orgasm during sex. And so it's just really interesting to know that there are options and that you should speak up because there are things that can be done. Look, sex is a very important part of everyone's life, right? All of our lives. It's, if anything, it's one of the most important things that we do. And it's weird. Um, I understand why it's somewhat of a taboo subject, but it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be, especially if you're having issues. And it's not like you have to go out there and flaunt to the world what the problem is, but you just seek medical consultation. Because now, you know, obviously this is where we are now. 10 years ago, we didn't have this many options. Five, 10 years from now, yeah, one of sexual therapists, sexual spe- specialists, people who who are truly, truly specialized in each of these aspects. So it's going to be, it's one of those things that if you have any issues, you got to see consultation. If you're not on all of the dating apps right now, I don't know what you're doing. Every single person is virtually dating. Like I, every single friend of mine is on all of the apps. And one app that I feel like many people don't, use as much as they should because they don't realize that it exists is OkCupid. If you haven't heard of OkCupid, they're famous for matching people on what matters to them most. So very specific details, not just like, oh, create a bio and hope for the best. No, OkCupid asks you extremely thoughtful and provoking questions and they get to the heart of who you actually are and what type of person you're looking for. 93% of people are virtual dating right now. There's never been a better time to download an app to find someone. And by the way, you don't have to leave your couch and put yourself in a weird situation. You can match with someone on OkCupid and you can have a virtual date if that's what you're comfortable with, or you can go on a walk. But it's really, really amazing. And they give you a percentage of how well you'd match with someone. So for example, if you're 95% compatible with someone, you're going to want to you know, try that out. Download the OkCupid app. It's free and there's no reason not to check it out. Download OkCupid in the app store. Now, whenever I need a restart to my week, it's so important for me to do something that feels good because I usually will work out on like a Monday morning after being kind of unhealthy and not good to myself during the weekend. And when I work out, I want to eat to match the workout. Like I don't want to just throw it all away. I want something like a delicious smoothie or like, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but a rich cacao avocado smoothie. Like, does that not sound like the most luxurious thing ever? And if you're like, what are you talking about? Where do I find these smoothies? Daily Harvest delivers these delicious smoothies that are all built on organic fruits and vegetables right to your door. It takes minutes to prepare. You just pop it open and throw it in your blender and you have an amazing smoothie that is so good and so fresh because when they make these smoothies, they like freeze these ingredients at peak ripeness. There's no better time to try and be healthy and feel good about yourself. Not any, you know, stupid diet, but instead 
eating amazing things that nourish you. And that's why I love Daily Harvest. And I want you to try it with $25 off your first box. You just use promo code ACME when you go to dailyharvest.com. When you're checking out, enter our promo code ACME and you'll get $25 off your first box. That is promo code ACME for $25 off your first box at dailyharvest.com. Dailyharvest.com. Feel good. Another person asked, they said, my partner's libido crashed over the last few years. Simultaneously, they've gained 50 plus pounds. Are these connected? Yeah, great question. Great question. So, you know, as soon as I hear that, the first thing that comes to my mind is testosterone, right? So as guys, testosterone is incredibly important, right? That's what makes us men. And we do know that as men age, testosterone goes down. So starting at the age of 40, um, a guy's testosterone goes down about 1% to 3% every year. That's natural, right? Like any other organ in our body, the testicle doesn't work the same way it does as we age, so it doesn't produce as much testosterone. However, there's certain things, there's certain lifestyle things that we do that worsen that, right? That make things worse. So not sleeping well, not eating right, not exercising, right? As simple as that sounds. So they published a study where um, they, if you lose 15% of your body weight, so obesity is a huge, huge thing for testosterone. If you lose 15% of your weight, your testosterone will go up 250 points. So, you know, there's not, not to get off the topic here, but yeah, so testosterone, you know, there's lifestyle factors really, really limit our, our um, ability to maintain normal testosterone levels. So to answer yeah. your question, that makes me think low libido. So the main symptoms or the main reasons why come, guys come to the doctor for, for low testosterone, they complain about libido, erectile function, fatigue, not being able to exercise the way, the way they used to and weight gain. So she obviously identified two of those things. So I would say, I would say just getting a blood test and seeing where his testosterone levels are at would be very important. Typically what you want to do is you want to check it before 10 AM because that's when you peak. Your testosterone levels are peaked in the morning. Um, mm. So getting a blood test, but anywhere, you know, before 10 AM, um, just to see what your what level you're at um, would help identify potentially a, a testosterone issue. Yeah, I have been in a situation where, um, you know, I dated someone who we were kind of on the same page with our libidos in the beginning of the relationship, and then his kind of got much slower and lower. And I had suggested going in to check the testosterone levels, and he was like, "Absolutely not," you know. So, so it's it can be tough, but. I think if you really love someone, you're willing to do whatever it takes to, to check it out. Yeah, 100% agree. Someone said, how do you be patient with the new guy you're seeing who is struggling with erectile dysfunction? You don't want to bring it up and make it worse by embarrassing him, but it's an issue. He still satisfies you in other ways. Yeah. So this comes back to the point that, you know, what you and I were talking about as look, sex is important, right? Sex is such an important part of our lives. If you're bothered by it, good, honest, healthy discussion is important. Now, the one thing about erections, right? Erectile dysfunction, this is incredibly common. 40% of guys before the age of 40 will experience some form of erectile dysfunction. Either they have a hard time getting the erection or that once they get it, they can't keep it, right? So 40% of guys, that's a lot. So, and usually for younger guys, obviously there's a couple of things that cause erectile dysfunction. There's four things that you need for, for good erections. You need good blood flow. You need a good nervous system. You need testosterone, like we talked about. And lastly, you can't have any stress, right? You can't have any stress in your, and that's the most common reason why young guys have erectile dysfunction. And the idea is they get drunk one night. This is a typical thing, not always, but um, they'll get whiskey dick that night. They're not able to have an erection. 
And then the next time they try to have intercourse, next time they try to masturbate, they think to themselves, oh shoot, last time I wasn't able to perform. And right. the slightest, even the slightest bit of stress hormone in your body could then throw off that erection, right? Then right. vicious cycle where each time you do it, it gets worse and worse and worse. Now, as a girlfriend, I can imagine, um, you know, bringing that up will create further stress, but I can't tell you each week in this clinic, you know, in my clinic, I see at least five guys who are young, who experience something like this, who are in this stage. And there's a great treatment option for them. We put you, we put you on a therapy for anywhere from three to six months. Obviously we're going to rule out all the other health issues, but once you put, we put you on this therapy, you're able to come off, you're able to basically go about having good erections, good, strong erections. And again, have healthy sexual life going forward. Yeah. And I feel like the worst thing you can do as a partner to this person is be like, come on, like, exactly. you know, just make any sort of like, like that doesn't mean you can never bring it up. But I think in the act where they are trying to perform, I, I have experienced that the worst thing you can do is say like, let's go, let's like, let's, you know, move it along here. Or like, can you just get hard or anything like that? Like, that puts, I think, so much more stress into the situation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You just got to be supportive as a partner. Yeah. And I think you just answered this, but someone asked, is ED more often a physical issue or psychological? Um, it could be either. I could be, it really could be either. I would say for generally speaking for younger guys, um, if I could say two reasons why, two of the most common reasons, number one, it's hormonally mediated. If they are having low testosterone, they get low libido, they get erectile dysfunction as a result of that too. Um, but more so, uh, it's much more common for it to be psychogenic. It's, it's, yeah, it's you know, stress-related. Mm-hmm. And if a guy is on um, SSRIs, so antidepressants, is it more likely that they'll struggle to maintain an erection or get one in the first place? So certain, uh, depends obviously which one they're on. Various SSRIs have various side effect profiles. Um, there's ones that are actually better at um, minimizing the side effect profiles. So whoever puts you on it, your psychiatrist, your primary care physician, whoever it is who put, who's put you on SSRI, if, it, if the sexual side effects, if you notice a steep decline in the difference from before versus now, uh, before the SSRI versus now, letting them know, letting them know about that and, um, everyone's pretty much well-versed in terms of which ones have the, less, the, the, the least sexual side effects. So they could potentially switch you over to one of those and see how you do. But that being said, that being said, there's times where even those patients who switch on to the SSRIs where they have less side effects, you know, sometimes you can't, you know, they're still having issues. So we're not going to change. We're not here to change your, obviously me mental health is way more important. So there's mm -hmm. things that we could do to improve your, your erectile function on top of the SSRI. So um, Got it. There's, again, there's plenty of options for that. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about performance enhancement pills and things like that, like Cialis and Viagra. Yeah. I had a partner who I found Cialis in his toiletry kit and um, he like kind of wouldn't admit that he had been taking it. it. What's, I mean, I don't know, just you tell me your thoughts on these things and if they're good for you or not, and like which you would, if you would put any of your patients on them. So the Cialis and the Viagras, there's a couple other ones out there, Stendra. These are therapy, these are oral pills that essentially increase blood flow to the penis. So this is like our first line. If anyone is experiencing erectile dysfunction, this is our first line therapy for it. I'm a big proponent of it. I'm a big proponent of it because a couple, couple of reasons. I put a lot of patients on Cialis. That's what, that's typically the one I prefer for, for a number of reasons. So um, obviously, the two main ones are Cialis and Viagra in this class. So Viagra is the initial, original one. 
It has a much shorter half-life, but the problem with Viagra is you have to have it in order to have it the best efficacy, empty stomach, no alcohol, right? So a lot of times guys will go on a date night, you know, they're having drinks, then they come home, they try to pop the Viagra. Eh, it works, but it doesn't work great, right? That's why Cialis is great because number one, it lasts, the half-life is much longer. So really, if you take it, you know, on a Monday morning, come Monday night, you should be able to have good sexual, you know, good, good strong erection. It lasts a lot, at least 24 hours. There's no, there's no food issues with it, right? Food or alcohol. So you could have it on a, you know, with a meal, you could, without a meal, um, you could have drink alcohol. It's fine. They're very well tolerated. The side, you know, some guys will get runny nose, uh, stuffy nose. They get a little bit of a headache associated with it. But more importantly, and this is a big concern for a lot of patients, young guys who, who I put them on Cialis. They're like, am I going to get desensitized to this? So the answer is no, right? If you mm-hmm. buy it from a, um, like a basic science in the cell, when the way you look at it, this isn't Cialis and Viagra aren't acting. We call these um, PD5 inhibitors. It's an enzyme that's involved in uh, vascular dilation. These aren't acting on a particular receptor. What they're acting is they're in the inner membrane space or intercellular space. So it's you, you never get desensitized to this. So if, if like, let's say you're on Cialis for five, 10 years and your erections are going down, it's not because the Cialis isn't working the way it used to, it's just that your body, like your penis, like your testicles, like any other organ, it's not going to function as well as it did before. So don't worry about desensitization to this. So yeah, I'm a big proponent of both of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. All, mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of these men probably that come see you, you know, in addition to men dealing with um, possible ED, men also deal with male pattern baldness and, you know, hair issues. And so a lot of men will take something for their hair. And sometimes, you know, that stuff can have sexual side effects um, as well. Is there any one thing that you recommend for men to use versus stay away from for when it comes to that stuff for the for, for hair stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a good one. So, you know, it's a lot of guys will use Rogaine, right? Uh, Rogaine's good, but the only problem is as soon as you stop using it, all that hair that you maintained or grew back as a result of the Rogaine will will fall off. So that's one of those things. Like, if you don't stay on it, you're not going to have long term benefits on it. So it requires a little bit of. Um, it requires some discipline, right? For years. Mm-hmm. Now, the other one that's a little bit more common now is Propecia, right? Yeah. For Propecia, the, what Propecia does is it acts on a hormonal level. So without getting too technical here. So testosterone, testosterone in your body gets converted to another enzyme called DHT. Now, DHT does two, it's involved in male pattern baldness and it, prostate growth, those two things. No. So what, what Propecia does is it blocks that conversion of testosterone to DHT. However, as you can imagine, because it's acting on a hormonal level, it does cause problems with, there's a known, there's a known impact with sexual side effects, whether it's erectile dysfunction, anorgasmia, loss of libido. It just throws off that balance between the estrogen levels in your body, the testosterone levels in your body, and the DHT levels in your body. Some guys will even get breast tenderness as a result of it too. Guys will, you know, who are on it typically after a few months of being off of it, um, if they have problems and they, once they come off of the medication, their symptoms, their side effect profile, it should get back to normal. Their sexual side effects should um, minimize. But um, yeah, there's nothing great out there other than the hair transplants. Hair transplants are long lasting. Um, they're durable. Mm-hmm. Um, but the oral therapies, they definitely have, you know, the Propecia is not great. I mean, yeah. Rogaine is not great, but Propecia has side effects. Yeah. I've heard that keeps is really good. Um, but so you had mentioned that for men to increase their libido, they should work out they should get better sleep. 
They should, um, you know, I forgot the other things, but they all seemed very um, like easy to do. What about how to increase libido for women? That's a good one. So, you know, the male, male orgasm, male libido, it's the men's sexual system. Is, it's very simple. It's a lot more simple than um, the female side. The female side, uh, from a libido standpoint, from a sexual, um, from orgasm standpoint, is a little bit more complicated. They've come out with new therapies for this oral therapy. It's called Addy, Addy A. And um, it work. you know, there's, there's a couple, you know, scientific, in the scientific literature, one study says it works. The other one says it doesn't work as great. They, so they're, they're, they're trying to figure this out for female sexual um, disorder. Um, yeah. There's nothing great out there. So, I mean, I wish I could give you something, but there's nothing. Yeah. Sex therapy could help. Sex therapy could help if I could. Yeah, sex therapy could help. I mean, as a woman with a high libido, I would say what makes me feel like in the mood for that kind of stuff is feeling good about myself physically. And so I think similarly to what you suggested for men, like working out and, um, you know, feeling like you like the way that you look naked and, you know, things like that, like feeling empowered to like get on top and stuff like that, you know? And my last topic, which I feel like is probably the most important topic, is HPV. Um, a lot of people are super uneducated when it comes to HPV. And we had asked a question the other day on our Instagram, something like, you know, do you or anyone you know have HPV? And it was like, it was like 51% of people said yes, but the the other percent like clearly have no idea that they probably have had it in their life. And the reason I say that is because HPV is extremely common. Um, men are carriers from what I know and it shows up in women, but it's the kind of thing that can clear up on its own. So many women, it will go undetected. Again, I'm not a doctor, so I would love for you to weigh in on this. And also like you know how there were those, there was like that shot for like cervical cancer that people took. It was like three rounds, um, some sort of like vaccine. How effective was that? And kind of just like, can you give us a general gist of HPV? Yeah. So um, HPV, um, we, you know, they came out with a vaccine. So there's different types of strains of HPV. Certain ones are more uh, virulent and they're associated with, with cancers. So, you know, HPV could either be general warts or it could cause, it could be aggressive like cancer. So penile cancer, vulvar cancer, vaginal cancer, cervical cancer, and even throat cancer, right? For guys, it's a little easier in the sense that, you, like you say, guys are carriers for it, but you could look on your penis and see if there's anything worrisome, but then you go to biopsy and you could address it. But for women, it's a lot more difficult because it's inside the vaginal canal. You know, the pap smear, the cervical exam, all that stuff is very, very important on a yearly basis because of this. And like you said, it's incredibly common. We do have an answer for this, and that's the vaccine. It used to have, it used to be uh, protect against four different strains. Now it, the the new one protects against nine different strains, and it, like it's three shots over the course of I think there's a two month break in between each one, and everyone should get that. Initially, insurance covered insurance didn't cover it. Yeah. After 26, but now they've they've opened it up, so everyone should get this. Everyone should get this. And one thing that I, don't quote me on this, but there was something that I read that. Even after you're exposed to HPV, right? If you take the vaccine, the whole three courses, even after exposure to, to HPV, the severity of the symptoms associated with HPV, whether it's um, genital warts, whether it's um, cervical cancer, vulvar cancer, the severity of it is decreased. 
Um, so it's worth getting, even if you think you've been exposed to it, definitely get it, definitely get it. Cause it, it, the other thing is it protects against the other strains that you may be, may potentially have not gotten yet. Yeah. And what can you say to a man who hears from their girlfriend? Um, I got an irregular pap smear and you know, my gynecologist said that I'm positive for HPV, but that'll most likely go away instead of turn into anything. Um, a guy's reaction to this is usually like, oh my God, like that's what, I can't believe that. Like, how dare you? Like what? Like guys are just so ignorant. I feel like when it comes to the subject um, and maybe women are scared and don't know enough. So like, how can you, you know, tell our audience that that's like not a big deal? Yeah. So, you know, it, it could have been from the guy himself, right? Right. right now, we don't have a test for, for testing guys for HPV. We don't have one. It's not a blood test. Unless you have, unless you have like a lesion on your penis, you know, there's no way of, of saying, hey, listen, you have it or you're, you're the, the, the guy who gave it to her or not. But it's incredibly common. It's incredibly common. But if you've been, if you've been um, vaccinated against this, it does decrease some of the stress and some of the anxiety associated with it. But uh, like you said, it, HPV is common. Um, the key is normal exams, physical exams, more so from the female standpoint, just to make sure things aren't progressing. You're not getting that, uh, you're decreasing the incidence and the chance of getting some kind of vaginal cancer. Yeah. I, I just want to say it for the record, there was a time in my life where I got a an irregular pap smear and was told that I was positive for HPV or you're not positive, but that it was detected. And it really freaked me out. I told my partner at the time, it freaked them out. And then it went away. And I just want everyone listening to know that that's so normal. And I had gotten the vaccine, the like original one. Um, wow. And and that still happened to me. So just, you know, be really careful out there, but don't blame yourself if something like this happens to you because, you know, as Dr. Human said, like anyone could be a carrier. So um, really quick, I did not expect to go over this long, but there's just so many interesting um, tidbits that I feel like we you know, can talk about, but this is really the last one. If a guy doesn't finish during sex, but still claims to enjoy it, what do you do about that? Um, I'd take him for what it, I'd take him for his word. If, if, if he says he enjoys it, look, there's the thing that we have to remember, like everyone has this idea of what sex should be, right? Sex should last this long and should create, stimulate this type of orgasm for the guy, for the girl. Like, they should yell and scream or whatever it is. Like, you know, we all have this idea because of movies, porn, whatever it is. There's you know, sex. There's no, there's so many right ways of doing sex. So if he's not orgasming and he, and he says he enjoys it and he's truthful about it, hey, that's great. That's great. Then take him for what it's worth. As long as you're enjoying it and he's enjoying it, that's 100% fine. There's no reason. Yeah. We, 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 sh- we all do this and I'm, I'm no different. We all compare ourselves to what we think uh, sex should be, but it's not. It's uh, There's a lot of right ways. There's very few wrong ways. There's a lot of right ways. Awesome. Thank you so much. I usually would end this with like a rapid fire poll question, but I've asked you so many questions. I'm going to let you go back to being a doctor. Um, Is there anything that you can leave us with like a quote or piece of advice, um, you know, just for people and their sexual health or just anything that has helped you throughout the years? Yeah. So um, I will say, you know, like I, I think I alluded to this earlier, if you are having any issues, if, you know, sex is incredibly important to all of us, if you are having issues, seek consultation. It's very easy. It's, it's not a taboo subject. Most physicians would be happy to talk to you. I'm happy to talk to you, need be. But yeah, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of good resources out there and um, you know ways in which you can enjoy your sexual quality of life. Awesome. Where can everyone find you and follow you and possibly make an appointment with you? Yeah, so you guys can follow me on my Instagram. It's justin.human, which is H-O-U-M-A-N dot M-D. 
and my phone number, my information is on my Instagram page, or you can look me up on Google and I have a whole page on Google, Justin Human. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Human. Of course. Thank you for the time. 